I have to confess to you that I am more than just a little anxious <laughs> right now. I hope I can remember how to do this. Well, you're kind of a captive audience anyway, so it doesn't really matter, does it? Um, if you've got a Bible or a device that you can turn to, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 37. By the way, devices are great, but if you carry a Bible and you actually have to flip through the pages and figure out where things are, it's one of the ways you get to know it because we know what we put our hands to. I was looking for, golly, one of the Old Testament prophets the other day, and it's so much of the time now, I just type in the name on, you know, my iPad or whatever, and I go right to it, and I actually, I actually had to sing the whole song about the minor prophets that I learned in Sunday school to figure out exactly where that book was, but I got there eventually. You know, the prayer of humble access in our Eucharistic liturgy comes in part from the gripping conversation recorded in this week's gospel from Mark 7. You know the line in the prayer, apart from your grace, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table. The first of the two stories told in this reading is a somewhat playful, though at first blush, very insulting conversation with a desperate Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile. As she responds to Jesus' comment to her, to her with incredible wit and charm. And Jesus, whose character is always to have mercy, honors her request. The stories don't uh, necessarily chronologically follow the story that comes just before it in the text, but Mark places them back to back. Why? I think it's because it has a natural connection to the preceding story in which Jesus breaks with Jewish laws of ceremonial uncleanness. Steve Engstrom preached on, on this last week, uh, and you might notice he's not here today. He preached so well while I was gone, I had no choice but to fire him, and um, so he will not be back. No, he's taking just a couple of well-deserved Sundays off, and um, I, I'm so deeply thankful to him, to our leadership, to our vestry for investing in Lauren and me in some time off. It was so valuable to us, and I'm eager to tell you more about it, but not today. I'm still processing exactly what it meant. But in this passage, two things are happening. One, Jesus says, the passage from last week, Jesus says your actions, your thoughts, and your words are nothing more than the natural outflow of your heart. Have you ever been in a conversation where somebody has said something really dastardly and said, I just, I don't know where that came from? I do. I can tell you. It came from your heart. Because you are what you love. You will do and say what's in here. The other thing that Jesus does, according to Mark, is wipe out the distinction between clean and unclean foods. He just breaks that category down, just obliterates it. Then in the story we read today, Jesus is doing the same kind of thing, but not with food. He's doing it with people. 
Jews normally didn't have much, if anything, to do directly with Gentiles because contact with them made Jews ritually unclean. And in this passage, Jesus deliberately associates himself with a Gentile woman in a Gentile city, then goes on to heal a deaf man in the Decapolis, a region of ten originally Greek cities, and also dominantly Gentile. So immediately, we see that Jesus is breaking down a huge dividing wall here. There are a couple of other things at play as well. The first is ancient history, even then. It goes back to the Abrahamic covenant recorded in Genesis 12, specifically in verse 3, where God's intention was always and still is to bring blessing to the world through Israel. They would be blessed first so they could in turn be a blessing to the world. This was woven as deeply into the fabric of their culture and identity as life, liberty, in the pursuit of happiness is in ours. They would be blessed, and then they would bless. That's where the phrase, blessed to be a blessing, comes from. The second thing at play here involves who Mark was writing to, which is thought to be a community of primarily Gentile believers in Rome. The gospel of the kingdom of God, which is the central focus of the book of Mark. In fact, the first sermon Jesus preaches in the book of Mark, Mark 1.14, is one of the shortest sermons in the Bible. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of, of God, the kingdom of heaven, is not limited to Israel, even though historically and biblically it was to come to her first. So Mark regards the story of the Syrophoenician woman and the deaf man as a natural outflow of Jesus' reframing of ceremonial law, not just regarding food, but regarding people by including it here in this, in this part of the gospel. Mark is telling his readers that the good news is absolutely for them, too. So just, just a tiny bit more context. After Jesus' attempt in Mark 6 to give his disciples some rest was cut short, they withdraw from the press of the crowds in Galilee to the regions of Tyre and Sidon on the Phoenician coast, which is modern Lebanon. This isn't an especially long journey for them, just 50 miles or so, but it puts Jesus and his disciples in a whole other world. Mark uses language that emphasizes that Jesus' primary interests are privacy and rest. A mini sabbatical, maybe. I, I don't know. But Jesus left the place where he was in Galilee and found an Airbnb on the coast where he could spend some quiet time with his, with his disciples. Maybe in this almost exclusively beach town, Jesus will finally find some rest and escape the crowds that relentlessly pursue him in Galilee. Again, significantly, Mark places the story next to the previous discussion of what is clean and unclean, as Jesus goes to what most Jews regarded as an unclean region. 
But as we see throughout the Gospels, categories of clean and unclean aren't really boundary lines for Jesus. And his travel into the region of Palestine, into this region of Palestine, reflects his willingness to cross boundaries that had for centuries restrained others. And since Tyre and Sidon are part of the Syrian province of Rome, he's also crossed political lines, moving from the region of the Herodians who wanted to kill him to a region where, presumably, he would be relatively unknown to the political leaders. But Jesus wasn't unknown in this region. Mark's already told us in, in Mark 3.8 that some folks had actually traveled from Tyre and Sidon to Galilee for healing. So his reputation has definitely preceded him. And as a result, the news about Jesus' presence in Tyre goes viral. Despite, desperate people will go to immense lengths to find help, especially a parent for a child. We, we, we bore witness to that um, over the last couple of weeks in, in Afghanistan as desperate parents handed their children over razor wire to soldiers, anything to save them. And so a desperate Syrophoenician mother who is a Gentile finds Jesus to beg for her daughter's deliverance from an unclean spirit. What does Jesus do with this fervent request? He responds proverbially in the negative. The children, Israel, must first eat at the table before the scraps are tossed to the dogs. It's important to know that throughout the Old Testament, Gentiles were often thought of as dogs. And what Gentiles said about Jews was usually even more uncomplimentary. But even so, is it just me or does this seem a tad harsh? But having not yet learned, as many believe today, that she had an absolute right to not be offended, this shrewd woman simply accepts the apparent slight and turns it amazingly to her own advantage. Two things really shape the context of this exchange. Firstly, a major point at issue for Jesus is that he was very conscious during his ministry that his personal vocation was not to spread the gospel to the Gentile world, but to tell the Jewish people themselves that their long-awaited deliverance was at hand, and indeed to bring it about by completing his vocation in Jerusalem. He believed, as any Jew of the time would, because of the Abrahamic covenant, that if and when Israel was redeemed, that would be the time for the rest of the world to be brought under the saving rule of Israel's God. The Gentiles would be brought in soon enough, but for the moment, it was vital that he not be distracted from his primary task. He'd come north, out of Jewish territory, not to preach and heal, but to rest and probably lie low for a while after doing and saying some very risky things in Galilee. Jesus isn't denying that Gentiles have a claim on the love and mercy of the one true God, but he is careful not to be drawn away from an extension of his work into other areas. That would divert him from his mission and the dangerous task to which he was called. Jesus wasn't primarily, his work wasn't primarily that of an itinerant medical missionary 
but of inaugurating God's kingdom. And so mission drift was not an option for him. This story is a sharp reminder to us that Jesus wasn't simply called to go around being helpful to everyone. He had specific and controversial things to do and a limited time in which to do them. And if we remake Jesus into the cozy image of a universal problem solver, we will miss the transcendence, the transcendent importance of his mission. He simply must not be distracted from the messianic vocation that will ultimately lead him for us and for our salvation to his death upon the cross. But the other thing that shapes this conversation is that despite Jesus' determination to not be distracted from his primary mission, the character of the language he uses with this mother is actually incredibly disarming. The word dog Jesus uses here in Greek isn't the commonly used derogatory term that naturally evokes hostility, like the term miserable cur. Rather, it's a diminutive form of the word, that is, little dogs, like house pets. Functionally, in Greek, because they did not have a word for puppy, this is what he was saying. And so, the way Jesus uses this proverb points to the ultimately loving relationships within a household and isn't name-calling. In fact, given the day, it was quite playful. Parenthetically, uh, even this explanation might sound insulting to us today, but it's super important to keep in mind that PC simply did not exist in these cultures, and we're mistaken to critique or interpret the scriptures only through our contemporary cultural lens. We must look at it in its place. Interestingly, this woman's response is quick, spunky, and clever, and simply assumes the world that she and Jesus both knew. She doesn't presume to be one of the children, but even house pets wander around the table waiting for the crumbs that the children drop. She's asking Jesus simply for the overflow, the crumbs. Her response grips Jesus' heart, and her daughter is healed. Jesus exercises the demon long distance and absolutely in response to the faith of this quote-unquote unclean woman. This is big. And what Jesus did was seen by the disciples and written up by Mark as a sign that he'd meant what he'd said about cleanness and uncleanness. The old barriers could no longer stand the quote-unquote dogs under the table, were already beginning to share the, mother, the children's bread. Pretty soon they would cease to be dogs altogether and become children alongside the others. So after a time, Jesus returns through the, Decap- the Decapolis on the eastern shore of the lake to avoid the crowds in Galilee. Even in the Decapolis, though, the needy are waiting and his healing ministry resumes. And Mark singles out this story of a deaf man with a speech impediment. Jesus takes him aside privately, separate from the crowd, to give his full attention to this man and uses a pretty gross means for his healing. 
He plugs his fingers into the guy's ears and then puts his own saliva on the man's tongue. It's about that time I would start questioning whether I wanted to be healed that bad. And when Jesus prays, he sighs. From the word stenazo, which means to groan in the sense of grieving. St. Paul uses the same word to describe the three great groans of Romans 8. All creation groans from the curse of sin, as if in the pains of childbirth, waiting for the revelation of the daughters and sons of God. We groan as we await in a corrupted world our eternal adoption as sons and daughters, and the Holy Spirit intercedes for us before God the Father with groanings too deep for words. Same word. Jesus groans over a broken world as he prays for this man. Jesus feels the pain of the world in which he participates, and he sighs with humanity. And as a result of this healing, Mark expresses the utter amazement of the people in the final saying in this passage, which is functionally a praise chorus consisting of three lines, which cynics would say is true of all praise choruses. (laughs) It's the joy of the redeemed and the wonder of those who bear witness. He has done all things well. He makes the deaf to hear He makes the mute to speak. This this healing of ear and mouth was at the heart of Isaiah's picture of redemption in Isaiah 35, the passage that we read from today, a prophecy of the renewal of Israel after 70 long, sad years of exile. God's people would be rescued from oppression and creation itself would celebrate. Healing then, and perhaps healing now, though we don't always realize it, can never be simply a matter of correcting a few faults in the machine called the human body. It always was and is, and perhaps supremely so, in Jesus' actions, a sign of God's love breaking into the painful and death-laden present world. It was and is a pointer to the great uppercase H, healing that will occur when the secret is out, when Jesus is finally revealed to the whole world and our present stammering praise is turned into full-hearted song. These healings bear witness to a coming time when there will be no more sorrow or sighing. Symbolically and theologically, Mark's narration has reached a threshold. Jesus will, in just the next chapter, finally be revealed as the Christ. He's raised the dead, calmed the chaos of the sea, exercised authority over hostile spiritual powers, and brought restoration and dignity to a leper and now to a deaf man. He's dispelling the darkness and and renewing joy. He's he's begun the process of reconciling all things, of uh, making all things new. His miracles are never merely displays of power or expressions of compassion. Far from it. They are divine acts of reversal. They reverse the brokenness of the world. The deaf hear, the voiceless speak, the dead live again. Chaos is conquered and demons are defanged. A new world, the kingdom, the reign of God is emerging and Jesus is the physical presence of that reign in the world bringing healing and peace and justice and righteousness. But that's Jesus. What's here for us? Well, I'm glad you asked. 
Because as followers of Jesus, we are called to join that mission, to participate in the reign of God by confronting the corruption of the world and beginning the process of reconciling all things back to God. How do we do it? Well, what did Jesus do? By the way, what, what would Jesus do is speculative, but what did Jesus do is substantive. And there are at least two things that Jesus does here. The first is this. Uncomfortable as it feels, we must, with Jesus, drop our implicit and ingrained categories of what is clean and what is unclean, particularly of who is clean and unclean. It's interesting that we've done that with food. I mean, we're just eating shellfish and bacon all the time, but we find it so hard to do with people. 1 Samuel 16, 17, when, when Israel was looking for a king, the, uh, Samuel says, The Lord sees not as man sees, but man, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart, which means we have a natural tendency to see people wrong. problem is that is that because of sin there's a confusion in our design and in our default design the ought is the uh, of the four chapter gospel of ought is can will design is is that god created us in his image the imago dei uh, and, and and people have debated for 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 centuries what that exactly means what i think it means is worth he has given every human being infinite worth But our default, the corruption that came with sin, is to put people in categories. Us versus them, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's so easy, so easy to dehumanize groups of people. I think it was Joseph Stalin that said a single death is a tragedy, but a million deaths is a statistic. This is because you lump enough people into a category and it's easy to forget their God-given and infinite worth as individuals. God infinitely loves you. Not just y'all. Design, the image of God, also means that everyone gets part of the story right. But our default, the world that is, means that everyone, including you and me, also gets part of the story wrong. Some probably more than others. We are not monoliths. We are, all of us, a complex mixture of design, what we were meant to be, and default, what we have become because of sin in the world. How much better would it be tomorrow morning you walk into a meeting or, or an encounter with an, a neighbor or something else and in, instead of anticipating 
and categorizing and thinking in those terms. We just reminded ourselves that this person on the other side of the door, this person next door or down the street, this person that we cannot avoid is of infinite worth. And then we do the hard work of mining for the part of the story that they're getting right. The prayer of humble access reminds us that apart from the grace of God, none of us is worthy in ourselves so much as to gather up the crumbs under this table. But the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And the reminder of this every week ought to make us incredibly humble and gracious in our posture toward our neighbors. Not naive, undiscerning, silent, or passive. Just humble and gracious. And the second thing that Jesus did was this. And James says it bluntly and painfully in this week's epistle reading. And I can't soften it. Faith without works is dead. As disciples of Jesus, we groan over brokenness. We pray for the broken and we act for their sake. In other words, faith does that's the heart of our shared vision, to proclaim and promote the gospel, giving ever more time, talent, and treasure to seeking the flourishing of our neighbors. Who are our neighbors? The people we can't avoid. To seek their flourishing. To take what we experience and express on Sundays and connect it, not theoretically, but tangibly, to Monday. And we will never wholeheartedly pursue that vision until we begin to see ourselves and others as Jesus does. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.